Welcome to episode two of the Time to Build podcast. I'm your host, Yaron Samid. And you know, when most people say they're taking a moonshot, what they really mean is that they're going to try something that will likely fail. When our next guest said he's taking a moonshot, he meant it literally. And on April 11th, 2019, he did just that. He shot the moon. The unmanned spacecraft that he and his friends started building as a hobby would crash land on the moon that day. Now, most might think of it as a failure. He sees it as a problem to be solved. One of many marking the path of his awe-inspiring founder journey. Please welcome to the show, problem solver, contagious optimist, and Flytrex founder and CEO, Yariv Bash. Yariv, welcome to the show. Today, Aaron, happy to be on the, on the show. So I am thrilled uh, to speak to you because as our listeners will soon find out, you epitomize what we are trying to accomplish with the show, which is to inspire fellow founders to dream bigger. And you are probably one of the biggest dreamers, most audacious uh, entrepreneurs who somehow has <laughs> pulled off literal moonshots um, where most of us just talk about it. And so we're going to get into what you've done and what you're doing, um, but we start from the very beginning. So what's interesting for us is to unpack Yariv, the human being, not just the successful entrepreneur. And so we, where we want to start is in your past. And we would love to hear something from your childhood, um, anywhere in your past where you think there was a, a really defining part of your, um, your childhood that made you the person you are today. Can you speak to that? Uh, well, th there are a few things that, that come to my mind. I, when I was very little, I always liked to, uh, to disassemble stuff. My, uh, my mother always tells me that that's how my grandmother used to feed me while I was assembling stuff. Uh, later on, my uh, grandfather, you know, uh, he used to fly a lot. So he always bought me those DIY kits. Mm. We were talking about the 80s, but there were some pretty cool DIY kits back then. Yeah. An AM radio or, you know, a, a motor that you like wind the, uh, the coils on your own, those kind of things. Uh, so I think that that's part of the uh, the things that, you know, made me hooked on, uh, on engineering. Uh, later on, my uh, second father, long story, but my second father back then was a locksmith. So I, uh, from time to time, I went out with him on, on, on jobs during the, you know, the evenings. So that was also an amazing experience. Um, so I, to, I guess to, break, to basically go to people's houses and figure out how to break into their house? Exactly. Okay, interesting. So I guess it's all of those things together. I can't really point in at anything specific. Are, are your parents... Um, entrepreneurs? Are they particularly optimistic people? Did you have a role model at home? Uh, not that much. Uh, both my fathers are, uh, you know, they, 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 they're business owners, but not really uh, in an in entrepreneurial way. And my mom is a school, school teacher. So uh, mm. what does she teach? Uh, she's like uh, an elementary school teacher. Uh -huh. So she's a mechanechet, 
So she and, teaches almost everything for her class. And so you, you get into engineering early on. Um, you study at Tel Aviv University. Mm -hmm. um, you get a degree as an engineer. What, what pushes you to become an engineer versus uh, anything else? Uh, well, the reason I went to study uh, electronics engineering was because I, w I wasn't accepted to uh, computer science. <laughs> You're kidding. Uh, You're no, kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. So I was, uh, wow. I was actually a, a combatant in, the, uh, in a special forces unit in the artillery corps, uh, Moran Meitar. Uh -huh. And I did my uh, Israeli SATs, my psychometry, uh, in July. But you couldn't really get accepted with July's psychometric to that year's studies. Okay. Or, or that's at least what they told me. But after I did my uh, psychometric and I got a really high score, I, I phoned them and they told me, okay, come over and let's talk. And I wanted the CS. But with my, you know, baguiot uh, and, and together with my psychometry, I didn't have enough score to go to computer science. But I did have enough to go to uh, electronics engineering of that year. So I said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to start with that and see how it goes. Wow. So literally from the beginning, a failure changes the course of your career um, and sends you down a path that would be absolutely remarkable and had you become failures it's all about the failures at least as a student i wanted to work at intel but you know i, I went there I, I had an interview and after two weeks they told me that unfortunately that position is no longer available so uh, i uh, i got an interview at the uh, technological unit of the prime minister's office and i got accepted there wow so you know and you never know you just never know you know, founders need to hear that often and need to be reminded because everyone kind of says it, uh, gives lip service to the fact that failure is, you know, a notch on your belt and it's the way to get ahead. But I have not interviewed a founder, a successful founder who has not failed mo more than most people listening. Um, and it's almost like it's something that you should look for, like a road sign on the way to get to the right place and embrace it. And it's, it's very rewarding to hear. And we're gonna hear about some other of your, of your failures in a moment, but after you, you finish your studies, you get into, uh, you start, you work for the government for quite a while, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of typical engineering, you know, not, not very risk-taking type of uh, career trajectory at this point. Is well, that right? The, uh, the, uh, the projects are, are, are pretty high risks. Uh, okay. We were talking about, you know, I worked for Q from the, from the James Bond movies. So, so we're talking about some really cool projects and, I, and I've done a lot of wow. different technological areas. I started with uh, GPS uh, uh, devices. I then went to uh, digital signal processing and real-time embedded programming. And I ended up being a team leader for hardware reverse engineering. So and oh, each wow. one of, you know, yeah, of those positions, I, I worked on some really cool projects. I, I think one of the uh, one of the reasons I had the uh, audacity to start SpaceIL was that I worked in a place that could build that a place that could build everything. Whatever was needed, that place could produce it. From a, a Nike shoe to uh, a microprocessor to uh, to whatnot, really. 
So this is interesting. So you're, you're almost like an intrapreneur. You're in a large, fairly conservative organization, but that's working on very advanced, very creative projects. And you are, you're thriving, right? You, you take leadership roles. You're, um, you're already, you've got the training wheels of an entrepreneur in there. You know, you know, not exactly. Uh, we're talking at the end, it's a governmental uh, unit. Right. The entire unit does those kind of things. So you're, you're an engineer working as part of the team. And actually the, uh, the reason I started SpaceL was that I got a bit bored and didn't get the, uh, the promotion I wanted in the prime minister's office. So let's jump to that. So SpaceIL, first of all, explain to our listeners who might not have heard of it. What is SpaceIL and how did it get started? So uh, SpaceIL is an Israeli not-for-profit, educational not-for-profit, a 501c3 uh, in Israeli terms. Uh, and we, you know, we were three engineers who wanted to put the spacecraft on the moon. But as we got started, we realized that this could be something, as someone told me, this could be something much bigger than just putting a cube on the moon. And that's why we started as a not-for-profit. And we actually, uh, we, we've reached more than 1 million kids all over Israel. We've got hundreds of volunteers going into classrooms, teaching kids about STEM education. Just this week, the, uh, the physics Mechina uh, Lebagrut was uh, organized, orchestrated by SpaceIL. Wow. So it's really, uh, it was uh, an organization's, uh, organization with two heads. One is the organization, the engineering organization that is building a spacecraft to land on the moon and make Israel the, uh, the fourth nation and also SpaceIL the first private organization to do so. And the second head was the educational front on how do you make sure that that mission creates a long-lasting impact on a nation. And wow. I'd say that, you know, when we started by uh, becoming a not-for-profit, I, I think that was one of the best business decisions that we've made uh, because we had more... So where do you want, him, want me to start? So... Uh, Basically, I want to. I want to stop you for a moment because it, it deserves the hard pause here for a moment. You are a government employee working on very interesting, you know, projects, very important projects. You're probably well paid at this point uh, because you've been there for how many years? Uh, government at this point. Back then, including uh, part-time positions, was seven years or something like that. Seven years and fairly well comfortable position. You probably could have stayed there the oh. rest of your life. Yeah, I could have, you know, retired at the age of 50-something with a governmental, you know, pension and everything. Okay, so, so on paper, you have everything that you know, most people would strive for. You have job security. You're a geek working on really exciting technical creative projects. Um, and then one bright morning, or maybe it's a few bright mornings, you wake up and say, I want to go to the moon. Literally, I want to take a moonshot and put an unmanned spacecraft on the moon. That, that's beyond not obvious, okay, for normal humans. Who has that kind of a thought? How does that come into your head? And how do you take yourself seriously that you can actually pull it off? So uh, basically back then I was also uh, co-leading a camp called Machanet. Machanet is the uh, Israeli creativity camp for uh, you know, active uh, servicemen in the uh, 
IDF, Shin Bet, Mossad, Israel Intelligence. Amazing. Yeah. We, we actually, we went to, Yossi Vardy visited the uh, Prime Minister's office uh, tech unit, and he told the, uh, the guy who ran the unit, listen, I have a camp called Kinernet uh, for crazy creative people, and I think uh, you should bring a few guys. And I found myself in Kinernet. And then me and another friend, we, you know, we went to Yossi and told him, listen, we want to do something similar, but for our organization. And Yossi said, listen, there's a guy here from the Air Force and there's a guy here from another organization. They also spoke about, uh, with, uh, you know, about me about that, with me about that. So why don't you all work together and create something you know, much bigger? So that's uh, how we, we started with Machanet. Machanet is a three-day creativity camp. It, it's a wild event. Back then it was in Mitzpermon in the Air Force Base. Uh, these days it's in Haifa's Air Force Base. And basically we, you know, the entry ticket is a crazy project. It has to be smart and useless. <laughs> it, really, it, it, it cannot do something that's useful because then you have security clearances and all kinds of problems. Sure. So people are building, I don't know, uh, someone built a simulator for, uh, uh, for a Maglishat line, uh, for like uh, a water What's slide. That? A water slide, yeah. You sit inside and it spins and rolls. It's pretty crazy. Wow. You've got people who've built computers that the logic works on water. You've got really amazing projects. Uh, a guy built a toilet that runs after you. And the idea is to, to connect all those different islands of creativity from different units. Usually, you know, everything's segregated. You're not supposed to talk about your project with other people. Mm -hmm. And just let people, you know, understand Tinker. that there are other creative people yeah. in other locations that they can maybe even talk with from time to time. And also let you experiment with things that you don't do on a daily basis. So if you're a programmer, you can do something, you know, you can solder stuff, you can do woodwork. Uh, if you're a mechanical engineer, you can program. And then you go back to your unit empowered with that new know-how and those new friends. And so so you, you are you're bringing up another interesting point, which is that most of the innovations that we use today at some point started off as like a tinkering hobby of people who were doing it for the fun of it people who are doing it for the intellectual stimulation of it, not for building a company or um, making a lot of money, um, not even changing the world necessarily. Like this water slide has nothing to do, like you said, with anything useful necessarily. But what's useful is that the, the seed of creativity in the human being who is now playing, you know, uh, creator is being developed. And that's another important lesson that you might be working on something that seems like it's useless and impossible, but just the very act of going through the motions is getting you ready for potentially making a very big dent down the road with the skill mm -hmm. and the muscle that you're building. That's, that's a very important lesson here. Um, so, but there's another, also a, another important yeah. aspect is the uh, multidisciplinary uh, concept of, of the, uh, of the camp and of creativity at the end. You know, we had programmers who then soldered stuff. And when they went back, they had another, you know, tool in their Dimension. head exactly. that they Dimension. can play with. And I was lucky or fortunate enough to go through a few positions in the Prime Minister's office. So I worked with RF engineers, antenna engineers, mechanical engineers, programmers, uh, and electronics engineers, of course. So you get 
a glimpse into all those different disciplines. Amazing. So you, can, you can imagine a solution in your head because you, you've played with those different disciplines. Absolutely amazing and critical lesson for entrepreneurs and inspiring entrepreneurs. The other part of Space IL that is so important to stress is that you assigned the second mission, non-financial oriented, non-profit mission of simply educating and inspiring uh, our youth to become engineers and scientists. By definition, you could not fail even if your technical failure or your financial failure might have you know, lost some investors some money or made some investors money, independent of that, if you as an entrepreneur assign a, a mission, a greater good mission to what you're doing, you will be on a path towards making some impact on the world. And if that is your ultimate goal, you cannot fail. And uh, well, well, yes, but don't forget that at the end, uh, I, I'd say that, you know, I, I said, said before, this was one of the best business decisions that we've made. Because there's really no commercial point, no commercial benefit in going back to the moon. Sorry about that. That's Bachi. Bachi's my, my co-host here on the show. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. That, that's true. That's absolutely true. You don't have a financial benefit necessarily. Um, there are some interesting companies now by billionaires that are being built for financial gain. And that might actually be an engine for driving that innovation. So that actually really helped with the, the pitch of SpaceL back then, because sure. we, we were part of the Google Lunar Prize competition, and the, uh, we had more than 30 competitors. Most of them were for, you know, for-profit commercial entities. And when you approach an investor or a VC, and you speak with them about a $100 million, $100 million mission to the moon, okay, where's the ROI? Right. And the ROI, is it IP? bring back resources on the third mission, those kind of things, it's, it doesn't really resonate with an in, a tough an pitch. investor. <laughs> but when you talk about with, with donors about the impact that such a mission could make on a nation, and it has been proven before, during the Apollo times, the, right. uh, back then the, there was the Apollo effect that was created and impacted the generation, then that makes a very different sense. And, and, and that makes sense, but for a different kind of, uh, you know, population and, and, and people. Let's go to the day of the attempted landing on the moon. So I'm fast forwarding. Crash, that's okay. You can say crash. Um, okay. Let's, 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 uh, let's talk about the impact on you. So you spend years working on this audacious goal of landing a spacecraft on the moon. Israel would be the fourth country in history to do it. A tiny country of 8 million people. The entire country, if not the world, is watching, okay? I, I was with my kids for the, for the launch, organized some big event at Tech Aviv, and it was like midnight or after midnight, room filled with children and parents and you know, gleaming eyes of, of hope and excitement. And take me through what happens. So I have to say that until that day, I was, I, I tried to, you know, lower my excitement because the, uh, when people asked me, so what, what are the chances? I had two answers to, uh, to give them. 
One was, it's better than always. I'm not sure if it's went from 2% to 4% or 20 to 30, but it's, you know, it's better than always, or it's, you know, it's 50-50, God knows. And, you know, when it's, you already get there and the, uh, the spacecraft is, is starting to do the deceleration phase, to really land on the moon, that's when you really get excited. Uh, the, uh, once I saw the numbers doing the uh, telemetry, I already, you know, I knew it's a, it's a lost project. I knew that it's, it's not going to end in a nice landing, uh, even before the uh, telemetry was, you know, uh, got terminated because of the crash. But I, I wasn't that disappointed, I have to tell you. It's, uh, the, uh, the trip was amazing. We were talking about almost a decade. Uh, and at the end, you know, it's like going for the first time to the Olympics and getting a silver medal. So it's not a gold medal, but hey, we, we've done a lot of, you know, first things as, as a private company, as a private organization. This was the first time that uh, a deep space mission was organized by a private entity was the first time that the private entity uh, managed to orbit the moon and tried landing. Uh, so we had a lot of first times. It was the first time that the deep space mission actually was piggybacking on a, on a commercial launch instead of having its own launch. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a lot of first times. So I was, you know, I, I was a bit disappointed that we, we didn't end in us landing on the moon, but you know, I wasn't that disappointed. So I can tell you from being one of the millions of uh, Israeli citizens who were watching, um, you certainly did not crash or fail on the mission of inspiring young children to become scientists and engineers. That was a absolute profound success. And you should be extremely proud as much as everyone is proud of you. I, I, right? tot I totally agree. And I expect that, you know, in 20 years uh, when I walk in, in, in a laboratory somewhere, I have someone screaming at me, because of you, I became an engineer. <laughs> that's, that's for sure going to happen. And that is absolutely priceless. Hopefully you won't continue by, by saying that, you know, you ruined my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so now what happens after? So the, the, it's a, the, the spacecraft crash lands on the moon. It's still there. Okay. So you've made a yeah. dent in the moon, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and what is the current status of the project? Are we trying again? How does that go? So yeah, we currently have a new team that these days are working on the design of the Rashid 2. That's the temporary name. Mm -hmm. And once we, we have, we, you know, we uncode the, the timeline, the budget, the size and everything, we will start fundraising for the second spacecraft. We already have some money from uh, new donors to get the process going. And once we, we uncover most of the, uh, the details, we'll go for the, uh, for the full uh, fundraising. It's a bit different than how we did it last time. Last time it was, you know, a, a, like, a, you know, a bit by bit, a piece by piece. Uh, we all thought that the project, when we started that the, uh, we can do that in $10 million. Today we realized that it's closer to 100. So we can't really, fool ourselves, all the other investors or donors. Uh, so we have to do that in a, in a more mature way, I'll put it that way. And do you feel that you've failed forward, meaning you have now learned what is needed to successfully land the spacecraft? So the, uh, I think that at the end, so usually what the, uh, the headlines told like a year ago when we uh, uh, crashed that the, the motors, uh, you know, just shut off. 
but they shut off because the main computer, you know, failed to tell them to, to ignite. Mm. So uh, it wasn't, it's like, you know, someone shooting, uh, shooting you in the head, but the autopsy is saying that you died because your heart stopped bleeding, you know, beating. <laughs> right. Sure enough, your heart did stop beating, but because someone, you know, shot you in the sure. head. So uh, basically, if you start looking at what happened, we have the, the command that was set, was sent, and the, uh, uh, the fact that after a reset, all the, uh, the uh, software patches that were installed got erased uh, because they were all installed in the RAM and not in, on the flash of the uh, computer. When you fold, you know, fold those all back, it all, it all goes back to the, uh, uh, to the main reason that the, the project was under budgeted because, you know, it was, you know, launching a spacecraft on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. And also that we didn't have the uh, enough time because we piggybacked on a commercial launcher. We basically hitchhiked on a much more expensive launch. Uh, our launch date was set, was fixed. Right. Set in stone. And if we would have missed that launch, we wouldn't have received the money back. We would just, you know, lose our opportunity of, uh, of launching. So we had to get there on time whether the spacecraft was 100% ready or 90% ready. Are we going to so, land it uh, this time? Are we going to land it second time around? Uh, I think the chances are better than always. <laughs> Spoken like a true diplomat and engineer. Uh, uh, okay. you, never, you never know. You know of I, course. Of I course. asked uh, Professor Ben Israel. He's on our board. He's the chairman of the Israeli Space Agency. And... Back in the days, he was in, uh, in the IDF doing a hacker between. So these are the guys that are doing the uh, really hardcore statistics on different, you know, missions for the Air Force and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, bef before the landing, asking, well, what are, what, what are our chances? What are you thinking? And he said, you know, there are things that you can't really calculate the, uh, the chances for. And those were, um, those were one of those missions. Let's move forward to Flytrek. So as if it's not enough to have <laughs> taken one of the most inspiring moonshots of any human being, um, you are the founder and CEO of Flytrex. Tell us about what Flytrex does. Uh, so Flytrex is all about drone deliveries. We focus on B2C, drone deliveries, uh, meaning restaurants, retail, and our broad vision, our bigger vision, is what we like to call instant gratification. And in a few years, that's going to be our ability to get almost anything you can order from your cell phone as fast as you can order it. Uh, we're talking about ultra-fast, ultra-green, ultra-cheap deliveries that will just replace the, uh, the, the current on-demand couriers. And so these are going to be deliveries where the drone will land, or will it let a, a long string down and drop it in my house? How's it gonna work and not make too much noise, not uh, be too risky? So it's already operating in Iceland, in, in North Dakota, and soon in North Carolina, and hopefully Israel as well. And all you have to do is, you know, order whatever you want on your cell phone, input your home address, and we take care of the rest. And 10, 15 minutes later, the drone arrives, hovers, above your backyard. This is a system that's designed for suburbs, for, for the suburbs, okay. for backyards. We hover above your backyard. Once you approve delivery, we lower to between 20 and 30 meters or up to even 100 feet. 
above your backyard, and we just lower the, uh, the package on a tether to the ground. Uh, it's completely safe, even if you decide to pull the wire, we just release the wire and fly back. Wow. It was really designed from, from scratch uh, to perform those kinds of deliveries to, to your aunt. Who, all she knows is how to input her own address and, and you know, credit card details and a cell phone. Wow. Uh, okay. So you, it needs to, you need to have a backyard or some sort of landing area for, for whatever it is that you ordered. Um, here again, you are taking on a, a dream competing with the likes of an Amazon who is working on, you know, similar type of a solution with space IL, you're competing against countries, right? There are only three other countries to ever even attempt, uh, what, what you did, um, to successfully do what you did. Um, and you feel that you are going to find a way to get through all the regulatory hurdles, um, the liability issues, potentially, et cetera, to do something that, no other, no other company has successfully done this before, correct? Amazon is working on it, but no one else has, has done this. So I think we were the, uh, the first ones to deploy a working delivery system in the world. And that was back in 2017 above the uh, city of uh, Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. Uh, and it's what did actually, you deliver? Uh, back then was... we, uh, so in Iceland we were flying from summer to summer because winters there are too harsh. Uh -huh. uh, so we're talking about sushi, hamburger, uh, wow. small electronics for our local partner, for AHA. Uh -huh. So this is our future. We're going to be, our skies will be filled with drones. We'll be flying up and up high so we don't, uh, you know, yeah, you uh, see them, right? Them. They're a lot safer. You know, if a drone crashes on your, on your rooftop, it's a lot safer than a Boeing crashing on your rooftop, you know. Of course. Uh, Incredible. So you are now going through step-by-step, city-by-city that will allow you to try, correct? And you are envisioning a future where this will be ubiquitous. There, this will be the, the way things are delivered. You're going to be the UPS, if you will, or rather the technology platform for companies that might market these kind of services. Is that correct? You're building a platform? So yeah, you could say that. And it's, it's currently, it's not a city-by-city but it's more on a, we're working hand in hand, hand to hand together in the last two years with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration in the US. And hopefully by the end of this year, we're gonna have a, what's known as a type certification, TC. And okay. that's what Boeing gets for the airplanes from the FAA. So basically it's a, a certification that allows you to fly throughout the US using your it's, you know, it's, it's not larger toy drones. We're talking about smaller airplanes. Uh, that's the level of certification that you have okay. to get to. And then once you have a certification from the FAA, you can get those easily adapted throughout the world. So once you have that, it's, you know, it's just this, as how fast you can move and, and, and you know, manufacture those. Uh, this is not simple stuff. You know, you're dealing with heavy regulatory, you know, uh, governmental bodies, et cetera. You must have moments, and obviously in the 10 years working on, on Space IL as well, you must have moments where you, your logical brain says, this is just not going to work. It was a nice try. It was a great dream, but it, I'm, I've hit a wall. Do you have these moments like normal humans where you just have 
hit your head up against the wall so often, you're bleeding, you're gushing blood, and you say, okay, I'm not gonna keep pounding away, I will stop. Do you have these moments? And maybe what was the darkest moment at Flytrex? The biggest challenge to overcome? Well, I'd say, you know, I'm a problem solver. So I, I don't look at those as walls, but I look at them as interesting, you know, problems looking for solutions. Hmm. Um, it's also, we, we had a lot of luck. For instance, in Space Hell, we had at least two occasions where, you know, we, we, we were really at bingo fuel and we had to fire everybody within a few weeks if we didn't get another donation in the early days of Space Hell. So I think that for me, the, the limit will, would be, uh, can I get a decent salary for what I'm doing? Hmm. If I can't, it's not a job, it's you know, a hobby and should be right. treated as such. But you know, I'm, at Flytrex, uh, well, we, uh, I can't say that we had like bad moments. It was mostly, uh, you could say they were bad, but I look at them at, you know, insightful moments where we realize we have to pivot a bit or a lot and adjust and to make sure that we are, you know, focused on what we should be focused. So I don't look at those as, as bad moments, but as, you know, adjustments. You had a personal dark moment um, where on a skiing trip, back in 2017, you had a horrible crash. And um, tell us about that. So uh, I've been snowboarding for 15 years. Um, after my kids were born, I, I lowered down the, you know, the, uh, the tempo, uh, stopped doing uh, jumps on the uh, snow parks and those kind of things. And I went on another uh, you know, snowboarding trip with friends, the same group, we've been snowboarding together for 15 years now. And I just, you know, caught a bad, uh, uh, like a bad jump in a very, uh, you know, really, really near the slopes and just landed on my back and immediately felt like half my body disappeared. And luckily I, I stayed conscious and I just raised the, one of my arms didn't work, but I, I was like, okay, I'm on my back. I start feeling half of my body. I just, you know, I, I started patting myself and seeing that everything's in place. And I just, you know, raised the, uh, the right arm, but still walked and started screaming. And within, I don't know, half a minute, two guys stopped nearby. Uh, when we you know, snowball together, we just, you know, we've been snowboarding for 15 years. So we just wait downstairs for, for, for everybody to arrive. So I knew that my bodies are waiting for me downstairs at the, uh, you know, near the, uh, the chairlift. So two guys that uh, skied nearby stopped. They asked me what's going on, and I told them, well, "Listen, I don't feel half of my body." And then you know the uh, the professionals came, the uh, the ski patrol came, and everything. And then one of my friends came, and he's a uh, uh, a, a physicist. So you know, he immediately realized that there was something really bad going on. And half an hour later, or an hour later, I was already on the helicopter on my way to the hospital. But when the uh, medical team already arrived at the, uh, you know, at the field, I told myself, listen, Yariv, luckily you're in France. The professionals have arrived. You, can, you can't hope for a better treatment. So, I, I, you know, I, I was okay. I was explaining to my friend where my <laughs> is at and the medical insurance and everything that and in my hotel room. 
And I basically phased out on the helicopter on the way to the uh, hospital. Uh, I was then put on uh, two days of uh, medically induced coma. Uh, then I was operated on. And after four days of, uh, of you know, short uh, recovery from the operation, I was flown to Israel. Uh, but already in France, when I opened my eyes, I was like on morphine and completely out of it. I, uh, there was a nurse feeding me some yogurt and I, uh, uh, she told me, I, I woke, you know, I was like, where am I? And she told me, you just had surgery. And then I told her, will I be able to walk? And she said, I'm sorry. Mm. And that's when I realized. My wife, who's, who is, she's also a physician, told me, you idiot. She probably meant, I, I'm sorry I don't speak English because nobody tells a patient that he won't be able to walk that way. But you know, that's how I uh, realized. And when I uh, came back from the uh, morphium in uh, Ichilov, in the, uh, 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 like the uh, emergency uh, unit of Ichilov, I was like, okay, I'm going to need to do some adjustments to my life, but you know, that, that's something that I can solve. Another uh, problem to solve. And that started, uh, you know, it took me half a year to get out of the uh, neurological rehab department. And the rehab is not for your body. I, I can't rehab, you know, my spinal cord got completely cut off at the middle. So there's really no recovery. We, we, we can't really uh, go those back. Uh, the rehab is how to get you back to what you've done before or back to the community. And it was, uh, you know, it was like, uh, it reminded me boot camp for my IDF days. So it was like, so you are to, to get the tools that you need to, to continue. Today you are bound to a wheelchair. You're, you're paralyzed from the waist down. Is that right? From the, uh, below the chest down. Below the chest down. How has this changed you? Uh, I can't really say that it changed me that much. You have to be a bit more patient because things take, uh, sometimes they take a bit longer. Uh, you're the first one to, to board the airplane and the last one to deboard it. Hmm. After the guys that come in to clean the airplane finish, they then <laughs> remember that you're on the airplane and they have to deboard you as well. Uh, so those kind of things uh, make you, uh, you have to really become more patient and, and you have to be a bit more, you have to plan your things. Uh, for instance, if I wanna, uh, I have to choose my uh, clothings before I go to bed because in the morning I want to get dressed in bed because it's a lot easier than going to the wheelchair, picking up clothes and, and then going back to the, uh, to the, to the bed. So it's uh, because you can't really put your pants in a wheelchair. You have to go to the bed to do that. So you really have to, you know, to plan those in advance. And I'd say that uh, international flights and, and, and you know, visits have, uh, you also really have to plan in advance. But besides that, uh, as a person, I don't think I really changed. But I have a new joke. I'm the only person in the world who has crashed on two planets. <laughs> That's great. Listen, I, I, uh, I have to say what's interesting about what you did not say is anything about being angry, being upset, uh, thinking this is not fair. Why you uh, slowing down in any way? If anything, 
you are a problem solver who has another problem to solve. And this is a problem that you actually are thinking of tackling, right? After you figure out unmanned uh, deliveries and sending another spacecraft to the moon, you are actually going to try to solve the fact that you cannot walk and maybe walk again someday? So hopefully, the, uh, you know, I have a lot of background when it comes to electronics, to computer science, to uh, programming, those areas. I have zero understanding in biology and chemistry. Uh, it's something that I was always intrigued by, but I never had the chance to, uh, to go into. And you can't really do two things simultaneously. I mean, I'm now focused 150% on flight tracks. Uh, so having said that, uh, I'm, you know, I try to meet people who are working on the field. And there is progress, but it's so slow. So slow. Uh, and, you know, as time goes by, the, uh, the rest of your uh, biological systems all, also get hit. Uh, your muscles uh, start to, you know, to, uh, to denervate and they get smaller and they actually, after 10, 15 years, they start becoming fat tissues instead of muscle tissues. Uh, so I'm not sure that that would be something that I, I would be able to solve on my own. By, but hopefully in a decade or so, with you know, stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of things, we'll be able to solve those uh, problems. W one of the first things I did when I woke up in Michilov in the hospital, I asked my wife for, you know, to give me my cell phone. And really I had like, my other arm wasn't really working. I had like one arm and I Googled two numbers. I Googled life expectancy for spinal cord injuries in a wheelchair. And I was like, okay, that's the same as a regular person. So I'm, I'm not losing any ears. And the second thing I Googled was total available market for spinal cord injuries. And then I realized that I really got fucked. You know, the, the market is so small. Nobody's going to solve this problem for you. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I wish our listeners in the podcast could see what I'm seeing, which is this amazing smile on your face, which is so almost not connected to the, what you're talking about, the heaviness of what you're talking about. Um, it's contagious. And I think it's very much symbolic of how you're contagious as an inspiring entrepreneur as well. For the founders who are listening, you, are, you have worked on some of the most important and interesting problems. And I do have a feeling you're going to be working on a solution to your legs as well. Um, what is the most interesting problem to solve in the world currently that you are not working on for those founders listening? Uh, God knows, you know, there's the saying, you know, ideas are dying for a dozen, execution is priceless. So it's not really about the, uh, the, there are so many problems, just choose one and make sure you, you know how to execute the solution. That's the, uh, that's the hard part, not choosing uh, the problem. Uh, you know, there are so many problems, just pick one. Amazing. I, um, I, wish we could go another hour, but we are out of time. And so what we do at the end of uh, this podcast is we do a lightning round, which is eight questions that you have 10 seconds to answer each one of them. And that's how we'll wrap up the show. This is to get to know you a little bit better. Um, are you ready? Okay, let's try. 10 seconds per question. Here we go. First question, Nerif. 
What's an interesting fact about you that most people don't know? Uh, I know how to pick locks. <laughs> Who is better at you at what you do and why? Uh, wow. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are better than, than at me. You know, even my co-founder, Amit, is better at execution than me. So uh, the list is, you know, this goes on and on. What book had the biggest impact on you? Uh, I could name a few. Right now I'm reading uh, Never Split the Difference about negotiations. A really great Never, read. Never uh, Split the Difference? Yeah. Build okay. to Greatness. That's where I'm like an all-time favorite. Uh, Build to Greatness. Build to Greatness. Okay. Uh, just, when, you know, when you feel overwhelmed or just need a break, what do you do? Uh, play uh, Command and Conquer Generals or uh, a more modern uh, first-person shooter. If you could make a 10-second phone call to yourself at any point in your life, when would you call and what would you say? Uh, March 2017. Uh, you know, don't take that uh, snowboarding <laughs> tip. Yariv, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your definition of success in life? Uh, there's a song called The Way to Ithaca. The, uh, the success is the trip. It's not a destination. What is the current title? What is the title of the current chapter of your life? Wow, that's a hard one. I didn't say they would be easy. Uh, the current title is Flight Rex. Nice. Lastly, last question and we wrap it up. Yarif, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, doer, maker, builder, I'd say, engineer. Doer, maker, builder, engineer. Yarif Bash, the founder and CEO of Flytrex. I am so grateful that you took the time to share your story with us. Thank you so much for being with us, Yarif. Today, so and to all the listeners out there, until next time, it is time to build.